0: So tonight we continue on in the letter of Jude. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, we are in Jude 17. We're, we're in, in the, the rundown uh, the last few weeks of this important uh, and often under, uh, undertaken letter. Uh, and tonight we're going to be talking once again about false teachers, but this time about what kind of expectation the church should have for the existence Of false teachers and what they do in the life of a church. And so if you're new with us in this particular space, we journey through entire books of the Bible most often, and uh, we've been going on a a chronological journey for the last 17 years or so as a church, starting in Genesis, and now we are hanging out in the letter of Jude, which was written about 30 years or so after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so the church at this point had been had spread from this initial hodgepodge, ragamuffin group of handpicked people who had followed Jesus to this countless amount of spreading followers of Jesus across the ancient world. Miracles were regularly happening. The poor were being cared for. The gospel was advancing. Like, good stuff was happening. And... If you read the Gospels, that's kind of what you should expect. Jesus said, the kingdom is is coming. Like, the kingdom has arrived. Like, the movement has started. And so you should expect at the moment that Jesus dies and defeats sin and death on the cross, that in that moment, the serpent has been defanged. Satan has lost the decisive battle. And so the expectation is like, yes, Jesus wins. And yet evil and brokenness continue to affect the world. Which was, never, which was extremely obvious as these diversity of churches throughout the ancient world began to be infiltrated by individuals who oftentimes called false prophets or false teachers. They would infiltrate the life of local churches. Now, when I say false teachers, I don't mean people with just differing viewpoints and uh, slightly nuances on belief. Uh, these are individuals who, how Jude refers to them, snuck into the life of the church, and they have begun spreading a number of toxic things in the midst of the community. Gossip, unbiblical ethics, stoking fear, causing divisions. And when you're talking about their belief systems, their beliefs, it wasn't just that they had slightly different perspectives. It's actually that they were proclaiming a different gospel. They might be invoking the name of Jesus, but what they mean by that is not the same thing. Their core beliefs were opposed to God and his ways, no matter how they tried to spin it to not sound that way. And see, because they snuck in, we know that it wasn't obvious to everyone that they were in and that they were false teachers. So if you or I were uh, in, in, this, in one of these ancient churches that Jude is writing into, we might have been shocked to realize after some times that these individuals that we had had over in our homes, that we had done life with for some level of time, uh, that all of a sudden they are now causing deep division and chaos within the community. And when I was processing it, here's the question I was thinking about. If Jesus was victorious, then I would probably be thinking, shouldn't this like not be happening? Right? Like like if Jesus won over sin and death, then like shouldn't all of this nonsense not be a thing? In fact, how is any of the sin and brokenness within our world, within the church, within our own hearts possible if Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross? Shouldn't we somehow expect better, more, and light of the gospel? See, these are the types of questions that can keep us up at night, right? These are the type of questions that can throw us off on our faith journey or uh, get us to never go on the journey at all as an obstacle, now the last few passages that we've been walking through in Jude, uh, the author Jude, who is Jesus' half brother but now considers himself first and foremost a bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus, he has been writing about false teachers who were alive and active within the community of faith, whether people knew it or not, whether they liked it or not. And so in tonight's passage, Jude is going to turn his focus back to the church, those who genuinely loved Jesus in the midst of the community. Individuals who likely you could imagine would be disillusioned by the unexpected arrival of these false teachers. Staying up late at night wondering, how did we get here? And how do we heal? And so from that, Jude writes, Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So even from a first reading, you can begin to pick up just how urgent Jude sees the predicament they, they find themselves in, that they need great protection and care for the true followers of Jesus in the church. They need to be aware of what has happened and how they got to this moment. And so he starts by saying, but you. So in contrast to the false teachers who he just addressed, he is saying, now I'm bringing it back to you, but You. So let's go into that word. You, uh, the word you here is a second uh, is a second person plural word in Greek. In other words, uh, it is not about one individual you. It is about a you all. Otherwise, as my Texans friends uh, would refer to it as y'all. Yes, that's right. Such a biblical word, y'all. And so, what he's saying is, y'all, the church, true followers of Jesus, not just one person, but y'all are not like them. You are a different people. You belong to a different family. You have been adopted into a different identity. You are different. It's not that. Don't misunderstand this. It's not that. It's an us versus them in terms of all of those false teachers. Well, they're the knuckleheads, and you're so much holier and better than them. It's not that. Because all of us are on a level playing field in our sin, right? But what he is saying is he's making a clear line of uh, delineation saying, here's just the facts. You are different. See, so much of this letter is rooted in group identity language. That's why I love that we just sang of our belonging into the forever family of God. And what Jude explained in this letter up till now is that these false teachers also have a group identity, but they belong to the serpent, the Satan. And so for the true followers of Jesus within these churches, he is saying, who are y'all? I love this. One of my favorite words in the scriptures is beloved but you must remember beloved. To be beloved is to be uniquely loved. And so for all who are followers of Jesus, this is who you are. This is who the original audience was. And for if you're in this room tonight and you are a follower of Jesus, then this is who you are, whether you feel Like it or not, you are beloved. You are chosen and precious. You are kept. The God of the universe sees you and knows you. He knows all the brokenness. He knows all the successes. He knows all the in between. And he says, and I love you regardless of your best and your worst. He knows you and he desires you. His heart is for y'all. And Jude keeps bringing this word back up, beloved. He keeps referring to their belovedness because it is so vitally important that for those who know and follow Jesus, remember that before we are anything else, before we are any version of whatever we consider to be impressive, we are his. And so he's saying God's heart, the father's heart is for y'all. So much so that he sent his only son to die on the cross so that the sin that had once ensnared you could be broken free from. And he is saying the church is so loved by God in a unique way, a beloved way, that, uh, uh, in a way that is wholly different and other than all the other wonderful and beautiful good things that God created across the cosmos. And see, this identity, this is not secondary theology. This is foundational truth that would affect the heart and the mind. Because if you don't know who you are, you can begin to act and think and live like someone else which is the situation that I face. How about you? Do you ever, you're like midway through your day and you're like, man, I'm acting like somebody else. So will you and I live like God's beloved kids or will we live as if we are still spiritual orphans? Fending for ourselves, guarding ourselves, protecting ourselves, defending ourselves, refusing to show weakness or need out of a great sense of fear. Y'all are Love it. And if you're here tonight and you've never believed that Jesus can and will save you, if, if you've never surrendered your life to know and to follow Him, this is the invitation that is open to you right now. Any day, His desire is to invite you into this family, that this would become your identity, the most primary and foundational identity marker. Of who you are is found in who he says you are. And so for the beloved, what must the beloved do? Verse 17, but you must remember. So there's a must. There's a thing that they're supposed to do. What should the beloved be doing? They should be remembering. To remember is to bring back something to the forefront of your mind. It's something that had been like kind of sat into the recesses of your brain. And so you need to continue bringing it up Back over and over and over again. In the scriptures, in fact, remembering is one of the most vital themes that we humans see over and over played out between the relationship between humanity and God. Because we humans are a forgetful people, yeah? We forget God's goodness, His rescue, our desperate need for Him. And so we must continually remind ourselves and one another of those realities. But here we get a different remember than, uh, than we've gotten before. He says, remember what? The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's break this down a little bit. Predictions. Um, I have a question. What is your accuracy percentage for like bold predictions? Okay, maybe like when you're watching a movie and it's like a mystery movie, you're in the theater and you're like really good at figuring out what's going to happen next. And you're like that person. Um, hopefully you're also not the person that talks a lot because then you're ruining movies for people. Don't do that. Uh, but, uh, or it's like in sports, you're like, I know, I know how this game's going to go. It, like that quarterback's going to throw three interceptions or three touchdowns. It's going to be epic. Um, whatever it is, reality TV, whatever. we We like to make, predictions, right? Uh, Sometimes they are educated, at least hopefully most times they're semi-educated guesses based on the things that we know, right? And then we watch and see how they turn out. But you might be really good at it. You're like, you're really good at calling the game or calling the movie or calling the whatever. But still, you have to admit, even at your best thing that you're really good at predicting, our predictions aren't absolute, yeah? You get it wrong sometimes, because there are so many uncontrolled variables that can happen uh, in sports. A player can get injured. Or, uh, I'm amongst friends, so I can ser- share this one that is continued to infuriate me for a long time. Uh, or a movie like Frozen can happen. And in Frozen, okay, so in Frozen, you can watch the entire first two thirds of that movie thinking there's no villain in this movie. There's no villain whatsoever. There are no breadcrumbs at all that there is a villain in that movie. Until the last third of the movie, all of a sudden you find out Hans is the villain of the movie, but there is no clear indication whatsoever. All because I believe the story team wanted nobody to be able to predict the movie accurately. I stand by that. Um, Now, you might be here tonight and you're like, well, I I actually did call that in the theater all those 10 years ago. Um, Now, I'm not saying you're lying for thinking that but I'm not going to tell you what I am thinking about you if that's the case. Um, The point is, even our most sure predictions cannot be guaranteed, yeah? Because unexpected things can happen out of nowhere. They can throw everything off. But these predictions are apparently different. These predictions of the apostles of Jesus uh, and what it means by the apostles of Jesus, the word apostle, if you're not familiar with that kind of lingo, uh, an apostle was a sent one by Jesus who had experienced the, the, the resurrected Jesus in the flesh and was given a specific task, a specific role within the life of the early church to go and spread the gospel in some unique and incredible ways. Now, the Greek word used here for uh, predict is actually meant to give you the mental picture, not of somebody giving like their bold take on what's going to happen. It's to write down something beforehand with absolute certainty that it's going to take place. In other words, they weren't being bold in these predictions. They were being just honest. It was as if they were writing down in a journal what happened today, except they were writing what's going to happen into the future. In other words, it's a prophetic word. And so these predictions weren't bold at all. So what were the predictions? 18, they said to you, what did they say? In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So they were, so instead they were, these were prophetic moments first given by Jesus and then his followers who would come after him as the church would begin to spread. And so I'm going to give you a a high-level overview of some of these examples of how how that prophetic prediction had been stated in multiple ways. First, by Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, as grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Jesus goes on later, Matthew 24. He says, for false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets will arise and they're gonna perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so his apostles knew these words, and they spread these words, and the apostles began to riff on this themselves. In fact, going back up to Matthew 7, uh, Paul, when he is commissioning the new elders and overseers in the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, here's what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, God, has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in amongst you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. John, and 1 John, would even say this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Peter, second Peter chapter two, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers amongst yourselves who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So you see in this theme, yeah? And so first starting with Jesus and then his apostles began to clarify some predictions about these false teachers. Some, you could say, Expectations that these false teachers are going to become a reality within the life of the church. Not that we'd want them, but that they would come. Now, in our Western context, um, we can easily feel like the world should be and can be wonderful and unstained. And, uh, and, I'm, and, and we can know this most often when difficulties can so easily become, become such massive disruptions in our lives. And so we treat Disruption, we treat difficulties as if they are the outlier to the human experience. Like difficulty should be the exception, not the rule. But the, in reality, life is filled with difficulty, right? Uh, devastation can occur. At the very least, frustrations are like a daily reality in one way or the other. Now, maybe that's not the case for you, but at least it is for me, as I process, process life and the difficulties that I experience. The reality, though, is that life is filled with difficulties for all humans across the globe in an infinite number of ways. And followers of Jesus throughout the generations, especially in impoverished and third-world contexts and in persecuted contexts, are very aware of this reality, that this world is not perfect. In fact, as we often refer to it, it is planet death, where disruption and difficulty is par of the course— that we shouldn't expect things to always turn out great, that we should expect that there are going to be difficulties ahead. And see, these followers of Jesus, they need to be reminded that it shouldn't shatter their expectations to find out that broken people, false teachers have snuck in unannounced because Jesus and Paul and Peter, John and, and many more had all warned them of these realities that broken people are going to bring brokenness into the biblical community that while we are an outpost for the kingdom of light, a planet of death is still out there. Now, the specific quotation is probably a mashup of phrases, most scholars believe, of various sayings of the apostles. Um, It's Specifically, it's not a direct citation of anywhere that we can find any letter. But there are some major themes in here that are played again and again and again. So let's look at this prophecy, uh, this, this bold prediction. They said to you in the last time, let's pause there in the last time. Now, when we hear that, what we might be reminded of is something that maybe at one point you heard about concepts of like being left behind, something about Nicolas Cage, uh, the Antichrist, the rapture, like that kind of language. Now, the, this phrase, in the last time, it's actually an ancient Greek military term. It refers to a moment it refers to all the moments after a decisive battle has occurred, but continual battles continue to happen afterward. In other words, the war has already been decided, but yet the enemy is not fully surrendered yet. So the, the enemy has no way of winning, but is still somehow putting up a fight. Now, sometimes Christians will speculate about when will the end times be or the last times, the, the end of days, uh, a number of different phrases to kind of signal that. But we actually know biblically the answer, biblically the answer to when, our, when is the end times, it was the moment Jesus rose from the grave and all time since. Paul, Jude, they all understood that they were living in the end times. Because the end times, the last times, are the moment after the decisive battle was won. See, the moment that Jesus rose from the grave, the enemy was defeated. The serpent has no shot left at trying to pull off some upset victory. There's no version where he could even potentially begin to think that he comes out on top. He has been defanged. And yet the serpent continues to battle, seeking to manipulate and kill, steal, and destroy. See, he has never been a match for God. And at the cross, it became absolutely apparent to all of the cosmos, all these spiritual beings throughout, throughout the cosmos to know it is over. But yet he has every intention on distracting and damaging God's new adopted kids whenever he has any space to do it. And in this instance, he uses false teachers who Jude refers to here in this particular prediction as scoffers. Now, I'm going to ask you to, to be participatory for a moment. Can you do that with me? All right. I'm going to ask you all to make your best scoff sound. Can you scoff with me? All right, scoff. Ready? Like, <coughs> right? Some good scoffs. All right. So scoffing. I'm sure that's the first time you all ever scoffed. That's why I wanted you to experience <laughs> scoffing because you once had that friend who scoffed. Um, we, what, what are we doing when we're scoffing? We are dismissing. Scoffers are dismissive. You want to make it clear that this person or their ideas are not even worth consideration. That's why you scoff. That's why I scoffed at my parents a lot when I was a teenager, right? Like, you're like, ah, oh, Danny. All right, these scoffers, what have they been scoffing about? They've been scoffing because they are following their own ungodly passions. They are scoffers at, they are scoffing at God's desires for humanities, for his commands and his purposes. And they have sold out to doing life in their own way. And so they're like looking at the scriptures, they're like, they're scoffing. They have defined good and bad on their own terms. And they scoff the idea of submitting their lives to their creator. No. And so now in Jude 19, he gives a little bit more color, a little bit more context to understand how we would be able to and how these believers would be able to figure out what are how do you know the false teachers? It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And so we get a little bit more about their identity. How, do you, how would we be able to uh, tell who these false teachers are in a lineup? They're divisive. Worldly people, devoid of the spirit. So they're gonna be the ones who are most likely to stir the pot, pitting followers of Jesus against one another. They're worldly, meaning that they don't actually care about God or his desires. They have defined getting bad on their own terms in light of the culture around them rather than submitting their lives to this, to the words of God. And they lack the spirit of God because they've never received the spirit within them. Now let's go back to Matthew, 5, or Matthew 7 again in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And so what Jesus is saying is there is always a correlation between a tree and its fruit, a person and the fruit that they produce. You can tell if a tree is good, if its fruit is good. And Paul ends up hyperlinking this kind of language in Galatians chapter 5 when he is writing to the church in Galatia, talking about what kind, if you're to look at a lineup of somebody who is filled with the Spirit of God, what should that look like? Well, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. It's not that every follower of Jesus is going to perfectly live that up. I know I don't. But it's the idea that when the Spirit of God is living and active within your life, that these are the evidences of his movement, of your submission to his movement in you and through you. And see, these false teachers are void of all of that. And so how do you know that they're false teachers? How how do we know today if— We are living with false teachers in our midst or the the social media influences that we have are false teachers. Are they divisive? Are they bringing about good and unity in the body? Are they worldly people? Are they more likely to teach things that are in alignment with pop culture or with the scriptures? And to the best that you can discern, which is really hard in a world of social media influencers, if they actually represent the true fruit of the spirit, which honestly is really hard to do on a screen. It's a lot easier to do when you're actually doing life with the person. And see, this is how we begin to guard the gospel, which is kind of like the thing for this entire letter, right? To contend for the faith, to guard the gospel in your heart and within your community. That's Jude's biggest point to these churches. He wants them so desperately to guard the gospel. And to do that, you have to have proper expectations but it's not just important to have proper expectations for how the enemy is going to work because yes, you need to be aware. We live on planet death. So expect that the church is not going to always look perfect. Expect that the church is going to be filled with people who are going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. Expect that the church is even at times going to have false teachers who make their way in and sneak their way in. Expect those things. That's just a reality because we don't live on planet life yet. We live on planet death. We live in the now and the not yet. But this isn't to scare us. It's not to make us go, oh my goodness, Satan. Like, I, we, yeah. Satan wins, I guess. At least in the here and now he seems to win. No, no, no. The scriptures clarify. No, he, he doesn't have a shot still. He's, he's, he's prowling around like a wounded lion. A wounded lion looking for someone to devour for sure. But he's wounded. He doesn't win this battle. He might desire to entice us with words that we long to be true, especially when they don't line up with the scriptures. But we're not called to be afraid of him. We are called to fear only God. We are called to fear only the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And that's why it's so important to remember that we are in the last time. That's why I love that that's how the prediction starts. We are in the last time. And it's really good news that we're in the last time because that means we are in the time since it became abundantly obvious proof when Jesus ascended from an empty tomb, when he came out of an empty tomb, Jesus won. We're in the last times. Jesus wins. This is, this isn't, nope, nope. I know who wins and Satan can't do it. And so, we rest on these predictions and we set proper expectations in the now and the not yet. Yes, in the now, we are still on planet death. But even in the now, all he can do is wound and afflict. He doesn't, the the Satan doesn't have the ability to do any of the stuff he wants to do. But we then can learn how to guard the gospel in our own hearts, in our own minds, and in the life of our community. As we meditate on the gospel daily, as we rest, like we talked about last week, in deep gratitude for who God is and what he has done and what he says within his word. We we guard the gospel when we speak often and well of Jesus in community, when we pursue unity in our body. In effect, take that lineup of what these false teachers are doing and like do the opposite of those things. That's like a really good marker, yeah? See, what Jude is trying to convey is something like this. Guarding the gospel, it's actually quite simple. But it is going to cost a lot of intentionality to get there. It's going to take work. But even that work is a spirit moving and active through us. Now, I want to invite the band to come on up. Now, I was thinking about expectations a lot over this week as I was just hanging out in this passage. And I was thinking about whenever I feel disillusioned, it is coming out of unmet expectations. But in the scriptures, we don't get expectations that—we don't, we don't get bad expectations. We actually get very honest and frank expectations but that are um, more honest than we probably want them to be at times but also more life-giving and hopeful than we could ever dare imagine. And so I would love for us to just close our eyes right now and take a moment and whatever the spirit has put on your heart, I just want to give you a moment to just bring that before the Lord. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus and, and something is changing within you even right now, I would encourage you to start talking to God right now. Father, I thank you that you desire for us to hear your voice, your kids, sons and daughters, once adopted, now forever yours. Not because of anything we could do or earn, but because you have done it all on our behalf. So Lord, um, we pray that you would uh, give us great discernment to to. to Take into account the various voices that, uh, that are in our lives, on our screens, in our church. And that you would bring us ever closer to unity in you. That you would give us hearts to know you deeper, to know you more fully, to experience your life, light, and freedom. I thank you for sending Jesus to the on the cross so that we could have a hope beyond hope that we could now know that we stand on the other side of the greatest battle in the history of the cosmos. A battle that was never up for grabs in the first place. It was a battle always destined to be won by your son. It was a battle that isn't just effective for some moment 2,000 years ago, but matters in this room now. So, Lord, would you draw our hearts and our minds near and help us to express deep gratitude towards you? Lord, we need you more than we know because we do have a spiritual enemy. There is a serpent who, who desires to do real damage. But, Lord, remind us that it is you alone who is worthy of our fear and our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.